fait, j'ai voulu te, te téléphoner pour te, te demander allô quelque chose quoi Okay, thank you to Zap Mama for Allo Allo and Allo to all of you listening out there, whether on the radio or streaming worldwide at WOMR.org. This is Arts Week, and I'm Jeanette de Beauvoir. Have you read the complete works of William Shakespeare? If you haven't, then get ready for a treat because you can see them all, abridged, of course, at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater through July 29th. The play is a fast-paced and madcap crash course in all 37 of Shakespeare's plays. Buckle up for a wild ride from Romeo and Juliet to Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream to the Scottish play performed by three actors in just under 100 minutes. And you can find out more about it, get times and tickets at what.org. From now through July 8th, you can still catch Bread and Butter at the Harbor Stage Company, adapted from George S. Kaufman's The Butter and Egg Man. And it's done by founding member Brenda Withers. It's a fun screwball comedy about Broadway dreams, backstage drama, and what it really costs to make a splash. And you can find out more about that at harborstage.org. The Peregrine Theatre Ensemble is back and performing a Sondheim tribute review at Fisherman's Hall in Provincetown. That's through July 29th. And you can find out more about it at peregrinetheatre.org. Dot org, and that's theater with an R-E dot org. In Provincetown, it's Bear Week beginning this weekend. Bear Week is the largest gathering of bears in the world. Tens of thousands come to Provincetown during this annual event to go to parties, bars, and clubs throughout the town. There will be a special memorial barbecue in memory of John Burroughs, who was the founder of Bear Week, and I would add a good friend of mine, who died unexpectedly this year. You can get the full schedule for Bear Week at ptown.org slash calendars slash bears. On Monday, it's the opening of the Fantastics at the Provincetown Theater. They've made some gender-bending moves with the cast, and it should be, well, fantastic. And you can find out more about that at provincetowntheater.org, and this time theater is with an E-R. The Cape Playhouse is pleased to present the Tony and Grammy Award-winning smash hit Jersey Boys. This international music phenomenon opens on July 5th with a three-week run through July 22nd. Based on the life story of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons, Jersey Boys follows the fascinating evolution of four blue-collar kids who became one of the biggest pop music sensations of all time. And you can find out more about that, get times and tickets at capeplayhouse.com. And it's Sunday brunch, darling, with Misconception at the Pilgrim House. That's Sundays all the way through September 24th at 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. P-Town's busiest queen hosts P-Town's longest-running drag brunch. And it began. It begins this, this Sunday and runs through September 24th. Don't forget that Farland on the Beach sponsors concerts featuring local bands on Wednesday nights. Head out to Herring Cove, grab a beer, a glass of wine, and relax. And finally, for one performance only on Sunday, July 9th, which is this Sunday at the Wellfleet Harbor Actors Theater, it's a mystery. Test your detective skills in this interactive mystery created by the professional performers of Just Mysteries. 
Enjoy an Italian buffet on the Julie Harris stage while the drama unfolds around you. Anyone could be the culprit, even you. $85 includes a delicious dinner, thoroughly entertaining evening, cash bar, silent auction, and wait for it, dessert auction. 1920s attire is optional. They will even have some accessories to go with your outfit. So mark your calendar and reserve now at what.org. So my guest in the studio today, I'm particularly excited about because it's a fellow novelist, um, a fellow novelist who actually writes books that are set in Provincetown, which is really exciting. A.C. Birch, welcome back to Arts Week. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Well, it's a delight to have you because, um, as I said, we've got so much in common, and I love, I love your portrayal of the town um, in all of your books, but especially this most recent one that we're about to talk about. Um, so why don't you just give us a little summary of where um, we've moved from the first book in this series to this book in this series, and then we'll talk more about this one. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've called, I, I have two books now that are uh, revolving basically about, around the same chosen family, and so I'm calling it the Homeport Chronicles. I don't know too how many books that will run. It could be only two. But um, in the first book, um, a young man has escaped an abusive relationship in New York City and finds his way to Provincetown. He's uh, basically brought into a an ongoing feud between two women that are neighbors, and he, along with others, um, set to find out why this estrangement, which is some 50 years old, has, has gone on, and a mystery ensues. Um, and at the end of that book, um, there really has been a family established, including the two feuding women. I don't want to give too much more away than that. My most recent book, which came out in May, is called The Distance Between Us. And that sort of picks up with uh, the situation that the, the previous book closed with. So we're now seeing this family firmly established. Um, some folks have passed on. Um, and we're seeing them, you know, as they are suddenly threatened by the fact that one of the principal characters that emerged from the first book is falsely accused of murder. And she's a female impersonator by the name of Helena Handbasket, who has basically taken over the running of this estate, which uh, in my mind is situated out near the, um, the breakwater in the far west end, uh, up on that beautiful hill where the Gropius house is. And so she's been building a museum per the specifications of the, one of the women that died. She's overseeing all sorts of things. And suddenly she, uh, there's a, a murder on the estate, and she's forced underground. Um, the fun there being that, that you know, she's got uh, an incredible ability to impersonate and to, to um, change, to shapeshift, really. And so she sets about um, discovering who actually committed the crime. And mayhem ensues. Of course it does. It has to. <laughs> it must. I love the name Helena Handbasket. Um, obviously, you know about a lot of really clever drag names that, that performers um, pick up. But I'm, I'm wondering, what's the difference between, like, female impersonator? You were clear that that's what she is. Rather, how does that fit in with drag shows? How does that fit in with tra the trans community? Um, just let's enlighten listeners a little around sure. that specification. Um, I, you know, this book uh, took a while to write, so I was well into it before the the assaults on drag were really gaining momentum, and of course they're just heinous now. Um, I agonized a lot about 
what to uh, what what kind of understandable name to apply to Helena's way of presenting herself. Mm-hmm. Um, the criteria basically is that Helena um, is a gay man. I mean, her attractions are to other men, especially her husband. Um, and she does impersonations of individuals, but she also presents as female um, 99% of the time. So it's not just an act on stage, right. it's her life. Right, yeah. and I, I felt as though uh, the research that I did about drag, it, it was an act in the sense that it's a very powerful theatrical um, effort. And I couldn't quite reconcile that with, um, with you know, uh, the full-time nature uh, that Helena had, mm-hmm. nor did I want to use what I think has become a pretty worn-out word of transvestite. I, I right. think it's offensive to some people in the community, and and I felt like this was the place that most closely um, described her choices. Um, if she were going to go to the Stop and Shop, she would have full makeup and and wardrobe, um, and is rarely seen um, as as the man mm-hmm. under the makeup. <laughs> Which makes her a really interesting person, I think, for anyone to read because it's not everybody's experience of life. Exactly. Um, so it really helps the reader, I think, enter into this totally different experience, but one that you describe so well Thank that um, one, one has immediate affinity um, to Helena. Well, that's been the case. Um, when I talked around with, pe- with readers and friends that I was looking at a sequel to the Homeport Journals, the, the 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 thing I heard always was Helena's in it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Helena Helena really uh, emerged bigger than life, and I was delighted with the affinity that people had for her. And the thought occurred to me that perhaps, uh, in a, some small way, I could make a statement on behalf of those that that choose to live as Helena and others do um, by expanding her personality through this threat to her livelihood, well-being, life, help, whatever you want to describe it. But, but also by sort of gently using some of the great tropes in, in literature um, to, to draw the reader in rather than, rather than sort of hitting them over the head with a sledgehammer and saying, this is good, this is okay, this is right. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of mulled on that for a while and then I started thinking about how certain books, great beloved books work. And I went, my, my mind naturally went to Jane Austen amongst, amongst others. And I started thinking about how in her books there's this sort of class satire that takes place. Her heroine, um, especially in Pride and Prejudice, has a lot of sardonic uh, attributes and, and is certainly leading the reader to see the foibles of the world that she's in. She's also um, extremely strong-willed and, uh, and basically a force of nature. And so I logically went to, well, what if I did a story that had those attributes, you know, a pride and prejudice, if you will, but what if the heroine wasn't a she? Would that be a good way to say to the reader what you just mentioned, you know, that, that, that maybe they could come closer and, mm-hmm. and look at something outside of things that they've understood? See it as personal rather than that sort of vast othering that, that the othering to do. And, and, and devoid of the political connotations right. and the group think. Right. You know, just have an intimate experience. And I have been absolutely delighted with the feedback about this book. I've gotten a lot of feedback from folks in Texas, Georgia, Florida, um, the Carolinas, 
things like, I love Helena, I want to be Helena, I wish Helena were my friend. Mm. Um, it's, been, it's been delightful, and I'm really, really pleased that maybe just this tiny, tiny sliver of pushback uh, in my book is maybe doing something to help people see the differences and, 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 re and relish in them. Well, let's talk a little bit about the setting, um, because of course we've got, you know, we, we balance characters and plot and context. And I wonder if this is a story that you could have written if it didn't take place in Provincetown. Perhaps, but I, I, think, I think for it to work well, um, it would have to work we have to take place in an environment where uh, gender differences is um, not commented upon, or I, I, I hesitate to say commonplace, but so I could see it working in a San Francisco or a Fire Island or, or some places where, you know, people have, have, have had the fortunate experience of being close to those that are different mm -hmm. and, and doing it. But Provincetown was just the perfect spot, not only because I live here and know it well, but also because it really um, just contained the natural beauty um, that, that kind of made it all more enticing for the reader to sort of come closer. So I, I think Provincetown turned out to be the perfect spot. And I think if I lived, lived somewhere else in New Provincetown, I still would have said it here. Still would have said it here. <laughs> <laughs> And you're not afraid of of also talking about some of the challenges of living here. Well, you know, I think I think there's sort of two facets to that. Um, the first is that there's no perfect place, and I think if you want your characters to be perceived as genuine and real, you have to first of all share their feelings and emotions, but you have to show the world around them with some degree of balance that it's not all puppies and 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 roses. Um, the other thing, though, I, I, I admit this, I wasn't above sort of, of using some of the things that have been occurring in Provincetown specifically, but also in other parts of the country, even around the world, to, to provide a backdrop. Um, to my way of thinking, Helena, um, who had ended the Homeport Journalist in an extremely fortunate position, having inherited and, and having a, a new position and basically becoming the, the chatelaine of this estate and the, and the chosen family that, that's incorporated therein, um, she had to lose something in order for her to have something to fight to regain or to fight against. And so as a bit of a backstory for the book, I uh, incorporated the housing crisis that we're experiencing in, in Provincetown. And there were so many things going on. I was writing it during the pandemic, so I, I did experience the large influx of people that escaped uh, cities like New York and Boston and everything to come here. And I also was well aware of the, the subsequent housing shortages that occurred. And I, I wanted to kind, of, uh, to kind of make a statement in some ways that you have to be very careful when you consider some of these things. I mean, to my way of thinking, you know, a lot of forces were, were combining. You had a lot of retirees, many of whom had bought condos or houses and had worked for years to sustain them and plan to live here all along. And that converged with a number of people that found like living in New York City to be untenable for them. 
So I tried to make the case in the book that it wasn't necessarily the people that loved Provincetown that were the threat as much as it was the fact that the people that were manipulating the housing market here, throwing service workers out of apartments and then creating luxury condominiums and stuff like that. So so Helena is a bit of a Valkyrie, so I had her um, really get on her steed and charge after that sort of stuff. And I have to admit it felt kind of good to, to, to do that. <laughs> I have to say, AC, that um, I don't think you chose that word Valkyrie um, out of the blue. You've got quite a musical background, and you love Wagner, I believe. Oh, yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Much to others' dismay, I am uh, <laughs> just, uh, I just adore Wagner. I, I studied music, that's my degree, um, orchestral trumpet playing, incredibly useful degree. <laughs> Um, and played sort of like medieval church history. Okay. Well, yeah, maybe that's one of the places we can meet in common, which is uh, we have we have degrees that no one else would dream of. Um, and I, I played with a, a few symphonies in mostly chamber music, but um, partly I think because I was I was drawn to Wagner because as a brass player, some of the best brass music okay. in the world is there, and I love playing Wagner. But I but beyond that, I, I just his notion of a total a total drama. You know, he's, he did the lyrics, if you will, of the libretto. He did the staging. He did the music. You know, he, he, he did the orchestration. He designed instruments to, to match what he required from the score. And this idea of a total drama, which, which I think some readers would say is what I brought into my book. So there's a lot of drama in my books. There, so that's, that's kind of the backstory on all of that. The gods having fights over... Over, over your, your characters. Of course. What, what, a, what better way to spend a Sunday afternoon? <laughs> so let's get back to the book, in fact, because I'm curious about how you um, decided on the title. How, do you, how, do you, how does your mind work when you're thinking of how to sort of not summarize, obviously, the whole book in a title, but give a title that will become clearer to readers as they're reading? And how did, how did that come about well, for that's you? Such, that's such a great question. Um, the title was the hardest thing, I think, of all. Um, I struggled with it for, it seems like, ages. Um, and I, I, wanted, I wanted a differentiator in the, that I wanted the book to, um, to distinguish itself a little bit from the first book, which had been marketed by, as, a, as a male, male romance. Mm -hmm. um, I think mistakenly so. My mm -hmm. agent at the time um, did that, and uh, the publisher that took it up, she went to that publisher, they picked it up, they marketed it that way. So I wanted a little bit of a distinction, but I was so troubled throughout the pandemic and, of course, afterwards by, by the, the othering that was occurring, uh, while I firmly believe that if people get past some of the manipulation that's, that's occurring and the misinformation that's you know, being generated, they would find they're more alike than not. So combining that with, um, with Helena's journey, uh, it seemed to me that the, the, the title had to be about something like, you know, it had to reference that, that, that uh, sense that we are, we are closer than we think. And it was actually one of the characters. At the very end of the book, she does this sort of soliloquy. Um, she reveals four paintings and talks about, in each case, that there's been you know, a, a, a violent reaction to the individual in, in the painting. And, and she talks about how this has been going on since the, since the pilgrims landed, and here in Provincetown first. And, and she, the words appeared on the page, and she said, you know, something to the extent that, that you know, all these years, you know, um, fo you know, fostering the distance between us. And I was actually 
at that point where the book was going into final edits. And I read that and I thought, yeah. There, there's the it. title. That's yeah, it. that's brilliant. It's hard to do. I think title, you're right, titles are just the most difficult thing. Really? Um, because you want to draw people in and be intriguing, but you also want it to be short and memorable, and you also want to give a sense of what, it, what the book might be about. So that's a lot for one title to carry. <laughs> I mean, you would think that, that writing, you know, a 380-page novel would, would be the pressure. It wasn't the title. No, was. the title always <laughs> is. It's always harder to write less than to write more, yeah, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to just t step back a moment and just tell people where they can get this book, what, what the title is, what, who the author is, and where they can find it. Sure. Um, it's The Distance Between Us by A.C. Birch, B-U-R-C-H. There's information, a synopsis, and whatnot on my website, which is acbirch.com. It's available at the Provincetown Bookshop, East End Books, Titcombs Bookshop up in Sandwich, as well as Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Indie Books, Amazon, and, you know, the usual. All the usual suspects. Yeah, the usual online outlets, yeah. And it's called The Distance Between Us. And the cover, oh, my gosh, you've got such a – I mean, I'm not I'm – not, particularly visually oriented. Um, I, I, I deal with words. So covers don't generally grab me, although I know that they're what cause other people to, to buy books. But your cover, I had to stop and just, and just admire because it is absolutely gorgeous. And I don't know how to tell people on the radio what it looks like. So, <laughs> Well, I, I can try a little bit. What it, what it is basically is a painting of the Moors in the far west end of Provincetown by an artist named Pamela Parsons, who is actually shown at the Art Association here. Mm -hmm. um, I was blessed to have a brilliant cover designer named James Iacobelli, who has done a number of covers for Joan Didion, Christy Clancy, and others. And he actually found Pamela. But the irony is that my partner, Ed, who's an artist, um, showed in exactly the same show with, with Pamela. We don't, we've never met. Um, and he, uh, you know, we, I remember seeing some work. So this is um, this is one of her paintings, which which just to me worked perfectly because it 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 it's when you look at Provincetown and a sunset down in that area, that's kind of the feeling that you get. Yeah, you definitely have captured um, in that that sense of the Provincetown light that artists talk about. That um, I guess for over a century has been drawing people here. Um, and that and that really feels I, I I'll use this word advisedly reflected mm -hmm. um, both you know in a sense of being able to see it but also in able to see that the shimmering and the, the the amazing light is reflected in your cover she did a beautiful job and of course it was really important to me that um, the cover have some you know have some artistic statement to make because art a museum and art theft plays a huge role in the mystery of the story and as it turns out, and this is totally serendipitous, the the the, the place where I put the, the mansion looks right out over the scene, and James Iacobelli didn't really know that. He found the painting and said, this seems like what you're talking about, and I almost fell over when I looked at it because I know exactly where it is, and you would have seen it from the property that I write about. So very fortuitous. Very fortuitous. Well, I'd love for you to read us a page or two um, okay. of the beginning. Um, so that people can jump right in. Oh, thank you. I, I'd be delighted. Um, I'm just going to start right at the very beginning. Um, and um, this is a section entitled, A Shocking Development. 
Aspiring socialite Celia Jane Strong was not prone to hyperbole or self-pity, nor was she a fool. When she determined her recent move to Cape Cod was a train wreck, she did so fully aware of the part she played in the debacle. Her Wagnerian build and extraordinary tenacity gave most people the impression of a force of nature, which was both unfortunate and misleading. Celia Jane was not so much intentionally bombastic as ill at ease around others. Far too eager for approval, she overcompensated, consistently missing social cues and assailing personal boundaries, often with disastrous results. She simply couldn't help herself. The few who knew her beyond passing acquaintance attributed her maladroit ways to 43 years of marriage to Stanley Strong, the self-made scrap metal king of Hunts Point. Celia Jane knew better. She was painfully aware how her insecurities had denied her the life she desired. To her way of thinking, Stan had merely exploited her anxieties, using sarcasm and abasement to keep her under her, his thumb. All right, I love it. I love Thank the beginning. Pulls you right in. Start You start thinking about these characters right away. I think that's a huge gift um, to be able to open a book and close a book well so that so that people are feeling like this is a story that's meaningful to them is an incredible skill. And I wonder what your background is in, in writing. What led you to start writing? Because obviously this was not your first career choice. No, it, it wasn't. Although I think it was always... It was always a strong uh, urge within. Um, I love to tell this uh, very brief story about my first story that I ever wrote. I was in the fifth grade. Um, I was very proud of it. It was about um, a pilot who worked for the Model, M-O-D-E-L-L, aviation company. And there were, he had exploits and his plane had a problem. I don't remember much about it at all, except that I gave it to my fifth grade uh, English teacher, who was also the coach at the elementary school I attended. And it came back weeks later, and, and it literally looked like a chainsaw massacre had occurred. Oh. And I remember looking at what he'd done, and he crossed the second L out of Model, so that the story that meant that this plane, this aviator was flying in a, a model, model aircraft. And I remember looking, that's stupid, I put it down, and I didn't write again, other than, you know, glasswork and stuff like mm -hmm. that. I didn't write again for another 40 years. Oh my goodness. And then what happened was that, that um, I was unable to, to continue performing. My, my front tooth uh, had been whittled down basically for caps and stuff like that and it snapped off. So they have what they call the embouchure, which um, doesn't work if you have a bridge. Um, oh, and I so, know that. so that happened, and then the writing thing just surged right up. And I just uh, found, I guess at this time in my life, I'd had enough experiences and, and things that there was plenty to write about. And the other thing I think that was really important to me was that, that I had been involved early, early on with uh, gay, lesbian advocates and defenders as they were really starting to inaugurate the fight for marriage equality. And I remember being with Mary Bonato and her talking about the need to tell your story. Mm -hmm. um, this is before even the Massachusetts marriages occurred. And, and how important it was that we all, as members of the LGBT community, go out and talk to others so that they, they know us and see us. And that became a real uh, driving force for me. And I realized I had stories to tell. And, and that unfolded from there. 
That's a great story, actually, in and of itself. And teachers, be aware when you're correcting papers <laughs> what you might be doing to people. A.C. Birch, author of The Distance Between Us, available at Provincetown Bookshop, East End Books, Titcom Books, and all your usual places online. A.C., thanks so much for being on the show today. It was an absolute joy. Thank you so much for having me. A delight to have you. And thanks to everybody out there for listening. There's a lot to see and do, so get out there and do it. And I will see you back here soon. This is Jeanette de Beauvoir, and this has been Arts Week. Au fait, j'ai voulu te pour te demander Allô, quelque chose, quoi, Quelque chose, quoi.